Today's program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn, New American Cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Marcus Krieg. And I'm Carmen DeVito. And we are Groundworks Inc. We design, build, and maintain gardens in New York City and the surrounding area. And We Dig Plants brings uh, the culture to horticulture. It sure does. (laughs) So today, with Valentine's Day just a few short days away, um, it's a kind of flower revolution for our topic today. And our guest Mm -hmm. is on the forefront of that cause, Deborah Prinzing, author of the new book, Slow Flowers, joins us today. Um, One of the first photos in her book is uh, Deborah holding a bucket of fresh flowers uh, from the farm, and it's a bucket of dahlias. And as dahlias are Carmen's favorite flower, Mm -hmm. um, we thought we would honor the person responsible for giving the botanical name dahlia um, on our horticultural honor roll. Thank you, Joe. Now, many of you know what a dahlia is, but in case you don't, um, dahlia is a genus of bushy, tuberous, herbaceous perennial plants native mainly to Mexico, but also Central America and Colombia. The dahlia is a member of the Aster family, and some related species include the sunflower, the daisy, the chrysanthemum, and the zinnia. There are at least 36 species of dahlias, and there are over 20,000 hybrids. Um, of and they're they're grown all over the world now and they're great. Now a lot of sources state that the name Dahlia was bestowed by Carl Linnaeus to honor his late student Anders Dahl, who was the author of Observation Botanicae. However, um, according to my research, Linnaeus died in 1778, and that was more than 11 years before the plant was introduced into Europe uh-huh. in 1789. So this is a, botanic- <laughs> a little sleuthing. <laughs> yes, botanical mystery to be solved. So while it's generally agreed that the plant was named um, in honor of Dahl, who had died two years before, Linnaeus could not have been the one who named it. So who was it? Well, scholars think that it was probably Abbe Antonio José Canavillas. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, who should be credited with the, with the attempt to scientifically define the genus, since he not only received the first specimens from Mexico in 1789, but he named the first three species that flowered from the cuttings. Thank you, Watson. Yes. Okay, <laughs> quite. So today we honor Antonio José Canavillas. Canavillas, I just wanted to say that. Canavillas it was rolls born, off the tongue. It does so nicely. Um, Canavillas was born in Valencia. <laughs> And was a clergyman as well as a botanist, of course. 
He was one of the first Spanish scientists to use the classification method invented by Carl Linnaeus. And after study and work in Paris, he returned to Spain. And in 1801, he became the director of the Royal Gardens of Madrid. So how did Canavillas get his Dahlia tubers? Well, this is the most interesting part of the story, I think. In 1787, the French botanist Nicolas-Joseph-Terry de Monneville was sent to Mexico to steal the cochineal insect, which was valued for its scarlet dye. Those mm-hmm. cardinals, those Spanish cardinals, yeah. needed a lot of red dye for their <laughs> voluminous uh, robes. For their Roman robes. Their robes. So he reported this strangely beautiful flower that he saw growing in a garden in Oaxaca in 1789, so, Vincente Cervantes, the director of the Botanical Garden at Mexico City, sent these uh, weird plant parts to the Abbey, Canavillas, and Canavillas flowered one of the plants that same year, and then a second one the year later. So, in 1791, he called the new growth dahlia after Anders Dahl, and I am eternally grateful for Canavillas for believing in that little brown shriveled tuber because if anybody knows what a dahlia looks like it looks like a it's magnificent the flowers magnificent but the root the tuber is a shriveled it looks like a like a cartoon cigar you know (laughs) so it takes a lot of faith to plant that and (laughs) expect a dahlia to come out of it so anyway but let's get back to the 21st century and um our modern flower industry um but before we introduce our guest i kind of want to share with you guys some statistics about uh-huh. about the flower industry in, in time for Valentine's Day. This data comes from a website called aboutflowers.com, which is a floral industry website. Mm-hmm. Now, according to that site, um, floriculture items sold at retail outlets in 2012 totaled $27.8 billion. That's a lot of money, you know. Um, that includes all the cut flowers and flowering p- plants as well. Um, in 2012, according to the Floriculture Crop Summary, retail floor shops, there were 15,307 retail floor shops. Their estimated average annual sales was about 362,000. Floral wholesalers only totaled 530. Domestic growers in the top 15 states totaled about 5,419. But fresh flower growers were only 280. That's right. a very small number for a multi-billion dollar industry. Right. You know, another interesting statistic I found was that imports account for about 64% of fresh flowers sold by dollar volume in uh-huh. the US. Mm-hmm. Right? They come primarily from Colombia, 78% come from Colombia and 15% from Ecuador. Mm-hmm. In terms of our US fresh flower cutting states, the top state is California with 76% of the business and Washington State, 6%. Um, and the final statistic I thought I'd share is the estimated number of roses produced for Valentine's Day in 2013 equal 233 million stems. Wow. Which is extraordinary. So today's guest is going to shed some light on a new movement that's trying to bring the cut flower business back to the United States and making things local. Her name is Deborah Prinzing. She is a Seattle and Los Angeles-based outdoor living expert who writes and lectures on gardens and home design. She has a background in textiles, journalism, landscape design, and horticulture. She's a frequent speaker for botanical gardens, horticultural society, and flower show audiences. 
Deborah is a regular radio and television guest. She is the author of Slow Flowers by St. Lynn's Press, The 50 Mile Bouquet, Stylish Sheds and Elegant Hideaways for Clarkson Potter, and she won a Garden Writers Association Gold Award book uh, about the Abundant Garden, which was published in 2005. Deborah is a contributing garden editor for Better Homes and Gardens, and her feature stories on architecture and design appear regularly in the Los Angeles Times home section. She writes for top shelter and consumer publications, including Country Gardens, Sunset, Garden Design, Organic Gardening, and Horticulture. Deborah is also past president of the Garden Writers Association, and she serves on the board of the Seattle Wholesale Growers Market, which is a farmer-to-florist cooperative. In 2014, she launched slowflowers.com, a free online directory to help consumers find florists and designers who use American-grown flowers. Welcome, Deborah. Hi there, you guys. It's great <laughs> to hear from you. Well, thank you for calling in. You yes. bet. So, how do you define slow flowers? <laughs> yes. Let's start from the top. Where do we start? Let me have a cough here for a minute. <laughs> Excuse me. Oh, my goodness. Um, thank you for that introduction, and um, let's. you want me to just talk about what slow flowers means to me? Yes, yes. please. Uh, well, I think a lot of people know the term slow food, and then, of course, we start seeing the word slow put in front of all kinds of things, like fashion, and uh, someone has a site called Slow Art, but, you know, these <laughs> ideas of <laughs> putting slow in front of any term somehow conveys a different philosophy or approach to the subject, and when I say slow flowers... I have two meanings. One is that I'm making a conscious choice about choosing flowers, my blooms, my buds, my leaves, my vines, my pods, in season uh, where I live. Mm-hmm. Not, not, for example, grown and brought in from elsewhere in the world, you know, during the wet, cold winter months in Seattle where I am right now. I also think there's sort of this artisanal, anti-mass market approach to the word slow that, um, you know, allows us to perhaps... Uh, live in the moment and um, appreciate nature. And I think that you see that in the food industry as well. Mm-hmm. Well, interestingly enough, the founder of Heritage Radio Network, um, Patrick, Patrick um, started the slow food movement here in the United States. Patrick Martins. You might Patrick know him, Martins. Deborah. Well, no, but um, I'm aware of that. And the slow <laughs> food people have uh, really recently invited flowers into their conversation and they're spo- they asked me to write a, an article for the newsletter this month so it'll be out soon i'm really thrilled yeah because you know flowers can sit on a table as well it's not just all about the food <laughs> well flower- and flowers are yeah flowers are kind of the forgotten part of american agriculture so um that's one of the things that i'm trying to advocate for right right so how did you flip that switch over? how did you go from being sort of um in your book you say you're you're an observer you're, you're a journalist by training how did you become an evangelist <laughs> of the cause? Um, well, I mean, you guys are evangelists, too, so you know you can get something under your skin and you can't let go of it. Um, but number one, I'm a gardener, and I've been a gardener for more than 25 years, and actually my early flower memories come from my grandparents. I had both my grandfathers were flower growers, and, and really? I don't know. Yeah, somehow skipped a generation with my parents, but my great my grandfather on my mother's side uh, was a Dahlia, prize-winning Dahlia grower in Indiana, and my paternal grandfather always had this peony patch in his Illinois backyard. <laughs> and so somehow I think, you know, let's give them credit. Um, <laughs> yeah. But also, I, you know, I'm a professional communicator. So once I stumbled on the untold stories of, of American flower farmers, which mm-hmm. was around 2006, 2007, I was totally drawn into their world and seduced by the story of 
what's happening with uh, our flower industry and and it's radically changed in the past 50 years. A, a few years ago, when we, one of our first seasons, we had Amy Stewart on. She wrote that book, Flower Confidential. Absolutely. Do you remember that? And yes, yeah. Amy actually uh, wrote the foreword to the 50 Mob OK. I feel like I picked up where she left off and uh, carried the torch that she started burning. Good. Yeah. So tell us about 50 Mob Bouquet. I, I love stories, and Alice does too. We love to have, we love to hear about people, you know, real right. people stories on this show. Tell us about a grower that particularly touched you, their, their story. Well, the 50-mile bouquet is kind of a play on the 100-mile diet, which is, again, a food thing. And mm-hmm. we were kind of using that as a metaphor. And believe me, I had so many people say, is that a rule? And I'm like, no, it's <laughs> just a suggestion. People uh, are so literal. <laughs> exactly. But this idea of, of sh- shortening our food flower mile, just like we want to shorten our food mile. But uh, there were lots of stories, but uh, and all compelling, but I love Tara Cola's story. Tara owns Silver Lake Farms, which is in Los Angeles. She had a little half-acre urban backyard where she was growing sweet peas, uh, which I have to say is sort of the starter drug flower for many people who (laughs) get into cut flowers. So she was taking bunches of her luscious romantic heirloom you know, Los Angeles-grown sweet peas to her local farmer's market, wowing the regulars. She did this for a couple of years. And then a disgruntled neighbor reported her to the Los Angeles City Zoning Department. Oh, and God. she was shut down. And it was all because this, I'll try to make this short, <laughs> there was this vintage law on the books that said, that dated back to the 1940s, that said anyone who was growing a, a backyard crop to sell around, you know, neighborhoods, and this was back, you know, post-World War II, people were doing this, um, but it could only be edible crops. And this is obviously a bully tactic, uh, but right. rather than give up, Tara chose to fight. And luckily she had a background in publicity and marketing. <laughs> so she drew on those tools uh, to right the wrong, and she launched the Food and Flowers Freedom Act and got all the urban gardeners in L- L.A. on board with her, and they lobbied City Hall, and it took two years and a lot of hardship, um, but they prevailed. She actually grew microgreens for the farmer's market which was edible, obviously, an edible category. She did that to support herself while she was fighting the flower law. Yeah, I was going to say, that's a big loss of income. Oh, totally, yeah. yeah. So today, Silver Lake, she, she prevailed in 2011. So in the last few years, she's just been blowing up the flower industry in L.A. at several markets. People hire her for, you know, organic weddings, and yeah. she's doing great. But she, you know, she's tenacious. You know, most of us would have given up. No, you so have that was to one be. Of my favorite stories. You have to be tenacious if you're a gardener. I right? like that story too because it's urban. Yeah, you know, a lot of people right. think you have to have a lot of acreage no. to be able to make it. And she was doing Silver Lake is right on the outskirts of L.A. Right? It's, Absolutely. It's, it was a, it was a little slice of land, and it's just it's great now. Actually, some friends of hers who are landowners in Glasshole Park, which is like the next neighborhood over, have invited her to just use their unused um, yeah. or to grow on their unused acre. So she's actually expanding thanks to some you know generous supporters right so give us in in your slow flowers book you give us um a definition of an old-fashioned florist Mm -hmm. someone in the business of raising and or selling flowers and ornamental plants now most florists as we know are engaged exclusively in the selling and not so much in the raising so but you're really helping to change that tell us about your work with that well, you, I don't know if you guys remember this. When you're, when I remember, when I was a little kid, there were there was always a greenhouse attached to the flower shop in yes, town. You know, yeah, there was a little. Yeah. I don't know. People were growing all right. kinds of stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, 
So I can't really take credit for this wonderful return to the old-fashioned definition, but I call the phenomenon the farmer florist. And we're witnessing this positive change from both sides. There are floral designers who right now are growing their own flowers, and it's out of a desire to have the most unique varieties Mm -hmm. to cut overhead. Mm -hmm. Right in New York City, there's people like Sarah Ryanen of Saipua, well, she's in Brooklyn. Yeah. Um, Ariella Shazar, from, who has a new shop in New York City, they both have upstate farms where they're growing a lot of their you know, beautiful foliage and flowers and branches. Yeah. And then uh, Debbie DeMars, uh, who's also in Brooklyn, she has a business called NYC Farm Chick Flowers. She's growing in her little brownstone backyard in uh-huh. Brooklyn. So that's kind of happening on the florist side. And then on the farmer side, there are farmers uh, who... Um, are being drawn into the world of floral design because their clients are asking for it. And people want that farm-fresh bouquet either, you know, at their wedding or their anniversary or their special event, and they want it to come from the farm. So they're expecting the farmers to offer design services. (laughs) Yeah. It's kind of cool. It's happening on both sides. It is really cool. Actually, one of our our head gardeners um, was involved. Her best friend was getting married this summer yeah. and she helped do the flowers because of course she's a gardener and she you know knows how to work with them but she contacted and contracted with a local rooftop farm here called the Grange yes which is very connected with heritage and they're right. a, they're a right. huge rooftop farm and they supply a lot of um, fruits and veggies to the local restaurants and to you know, farmers markets and stuff. And they now are in the flower business as well. And they're contracting for wedding flowers. So oh, wow, I've got to get them on my site. Yeah. I yeah. also want to mention um, Molly Oliver Culver. She's in Brooklyn and she is doing a lot of growing um, and weddings uh, using New York grown flowers. So there, there's all kinds of really, you know, people are innovative. I actually read a, an amazing book, and I'm sorry, I, I can't think of the title of it right now, but it was a, the story of a Brooklyn couple. Yes. And they, do you remember the name? Something of the, Dirt, right? Something stronger Than Dirt. Stronger Than Dirt. And it was this, um, it was several years ago, they yeah. wrote this, they were in their, like, Brooklyn brownstone, they had had two kids, and trying to figure out, you know, what they were doing in, in Brooklyn, like the rest of us. <laughs> and um, they, she stopped at the farmer's, or he stopped at the farmer's market and bought a, a vase of flowers. And it was summertime, and, you know, he brought them home, and he kind of artfully arranged them in, in the little jar. And the, the wife came home and didn't really think too much about it, but the husband just kept staring and was mm. like, this is our ticket out. Like, mm. we need to do this. So the whole story is them moving upstate kind of how they moved upstate, what it was like, and now they're huge farmers um, at the flower market, and all they sell are cuts. i got to find that book. That sounds wonderful. Stronger Than Dirt. It's, it's hilarious to read. Oh, wow. There. Well, it is, I mean, that's the other thing is that um, flower farming has been romanticized, and I have to confess that because I write for Country Gardens Magazine, every flower farmer story we publish is it's beautiful, you know, it's, it's this idyllic life, you know, sure. captured by the camera. And the camera doesn't show the, you know, 14-hour days and the, right. you know, and <laughs> dirt on your fingernails. Right, sunburned, bee stung, you know. Exactly, it's just like landscaping, right? Exactly. exactly. Yeah, people do think we have a sort of tiptoe through the tulips kind of life. Like, it's all so very, <laughs> yeah. 
it's pretty it's pretty dirty and 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 how many boxes of Epsom salts are we like <laughs> you know yeah, exactly <laughs> well we have to take a break Deborah hold on to the line we'll be Great. back in a few minutes to finish uh, talking with you you're listening to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. You are listening to Lung by Iggy Dean on the Heritage Radio Network.org. Stay tuned for more from We Dig Plants. following program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential small hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. Hi, welcome back to We Dig Plants. I think I want a room at the Tabard Inn. <laughs> I want to listen to more of that music. <laughs> that was great. Uh, we are here with Deborah Prinzing, author of Slow Flowers. Um, Deborah, let's get into the book. Um, it's a great book. I was inspired by the the variety of arrangements that you made. You kind of gave yourself a challenge of making an arrangement a week for fifty two weeks, right? Uh, That's right. Using only what was available. So tell us about that about that process and and some of the challenges of doing that. Well, what actually the, the what inspired this project was a an editor in New York City, not to pick on New York, but who said, who said to me, that's fine if you live in Santa Barbara or something. Of course you can have flowers year-round. But the Korean deli on the Upper West Side where I live doesn't have uh, local seasonal flowers, uh, so it must not be mainstream. And I was dismissed on that subject. Hmm. I thought, fine, I'll show her. And I just decided to make a bouquet every week for a year using what was in my own garden here in Seattle or what I could procure from a local flower farmer. And, you know, when you gave the statistics at the top of the, of the uh, show, yes. Washington State is number two behind California, although it only accounts for 6% of, you know, domestic flower sales. We still have a lot of farmers Oh, here. yeah, yeah. So, you know, when I look back at it, I think, I, why did I start this project November 1st? I mean, it, <laughs> I was That's like, the worst, right? So I basically had conifers and twigs, and that was it. <laughs> I was going to say, buds, but anybody? I can right. relate to that, Deborah, because I got married in November, you yeah. know, and it was 20-plus years ago. And um, I wanted to get married. I wanted a wintry kind of wedding, and I wasn't thinking about the flowers. <laughs> Which, yeah, I know, exactly. It was, it was interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, to, after sticking to my commitment all winter long, of course, spring finally arrived, and it was a breeze to finish this project. But to get through the winter, I had to create some cheats, and I'll, I'll give them to you and your listeners, and you have permission to use these. Okay. One is using greenhouse-grown flowers from local farmers. 
I, we, I have an amazing grower in Portland, Oregon, uh, Peter Court, and they grow roses, hybrid tea roses and lilies wow. um, for the floral trade. Uh, and I, they're in the 50-mile bouquet. They were uh, constantly you know, useful to me. But I used houseplants. I cut up Rex begonia foliage all the time. Yeah, yeah. I used forest bulbs, amaryllis, and paper whites. And I also used just a lot of dried products, seed heads, rose hips, grasses. So, you know, anyone could do that. And for me, you don't even have to be trained in design. It's just like working in the garden and putting a composition together, you know, a little moment uh, in the vase is like a little moment in the garden. Right. I know. Right. And speaking of the vase... You had a, you have quite a nice collection of pottery, uh, Deborah. I noticed. I was having yeah. some major uh, vase envy. Vase envy. I have because I I yeah. like that old fifties and sixties stuff. That Hager, you know that yeah like, McCoy, McCoy. Yeah. Um, and that well, was a big part of it too. I mean, how does your process work? Do you sort of pick the vase first, or do you you know tell me about that? Well, you know, either way. I mean, sometimes I would have just gone to the flea market and bought an amazing McCoy vase for like you know, two bucks or something, yeah. you know, it was chipped or whatever, but I got a good price. Uh, and I'd say, what can I put in this beautiful, like, uh, the, the glazes are so, they're like yeah. faded robin's egg, you know. Or I would say, oh my gosh, my forsythia is in bloom. I better find something that looks great with garish yellow. And, you know, it could <laughs> yeah. go either way. Yeah, yeah. But I did feel that, you know, if I was focusing on American-grown flowers, I really should focus on american vessels and pottery and that gave me an excellent excuse to shop ebay every week and tell my husband it was for the book <laughs> no it's work really it's work it's research yeah that's what i say when i bring books home <laughs> mm, oh i know it's an addiction <laughs> so another great thing in your book is is that you kind of have a recipe for each arrangement and you mm-hmm. include the list of growers for each plant or flower and um, it was kind of like a restaurant menu listing the sources of the ingredients. Do you think the public is ready to embrace this movement towards American grown with flowers? Oh, absolutely. I just think the public is so curious, and yet the labeling of flower origins has never been required. And right. it's with produce, fruits, vegetables. You also see it happening with seafood. Uh-huh. Um, so in the past few years, many farmers and florists have begun to voluntarily label their flowers. Uh-huh. Um, and then that helps tell the story of who they are. And then that influences the restaurant uh, right. you know, menu writer. Right. It, and I really, when I talk, and you guys use a statistic of 64% of cut flowers sold in the U.S. are uh, imported. I it really, in my, my research, has been more like 80%. Yeah, that's yeah. probably, and, yeah. and I think people find this appalling when they hear it, that these are perishable products. Why are we using hundreds of jumbo jets per week to I bring know. them to our stores? Yeah. Well, and also, don't a lot of them go to the Amsterdam flower market and then they come back here too. some of them? Yes. Or they go to Miami and they truck them to, to you in New York, right. or to, you know, and I just think the people who understand this the most are gardeners because right. that's a paradox. And gardening is so much about place and climate and season. And somehow the well, floral industry has been disconnected with those sentiments. So I think people are really ready for it. Uh, it's just I'm just pushing the dialogue, and you know, yeah. being on this show and helping to talk about it will ask. Maybe it'll prompt someone to just ask their you know supermarket. Yeah, where did these come from? Right, and who grew them? Right. Well, I you know it, it's so it's so important because I think we are so far removed from our food, from agriculture, just as a society. So I think it's really important to have those stories out there. There was a hilarious 
parody on that show Portlandia um, mm. right mm-hmm. in their first about season the about the chicken. <laughs> I didn't <laughs> see that. where did it come from and how does it spend its day? And <laughs> with, like, we need to go check the, where the chicken came from and they leave the waiter hanging. And it's very funny. I, mean, I it's, know. It's completely I, absurd. But the point is, yeah. these are questions that we need to ask. But the Absolutely. consumer likes to ask how much things cost. Yeah, so we right. have to ask... It's we have to talk dollars and cents too. We we have gotten used to cheap food yeah. in this country relative to Europe and other industrialized nations. Uh-huh. We pay very little for our food and we pay very little for our flowers. Right. So I wanted to ask you how much of a price difference have you found, um, Deborah? For example, for and I know it's it's comparing apples and oranges, so to speak, because they're not the same thing. But a price of a dozen locally grown roses versus a bunch. Of a dozen, you know, ro- dozen mm-hmm. roses brought in from South America, and I know the local roses will be probably fragrant and more beautiful. But what's what's the you know what's the expectation there? What, what's the price range that you found? Well, you guys had emailed me this question, so I yeah. thought I would do a comparison. Mm-hmm. In general, the price for roses everywhere is inflated at Valentine's Day. Oh course. yeah, right, yeah. yeah. Um, and it, there is often a premium for American-grown flowers, especially roses, and that's because the farms have to meet all U.S. environmental and labor regs. Yeah. Uh, it's more like a couture uh, crop versus a commodity. Mm-hmm. But I went online, and 1-800-Flowers and other sites like that are offering one dozen South American roses for forty nine ninety nine. Right. There's a site that I've been promoting that's called CaliforniaBlooms.com, they're shipping direct from the farm one dozen American grown roses, forty nine ninety nine. <gasps> wow. Which, okay. which would you rather have? Yeah. Right. What was the name of that site again? It's California Blooms Plural. And they are they are the retail arm of a rose farm called Eufloria. And Eufloria's flowers are sublime. And they I they have about five different types of reds offered, but they have pinks and whites and you know, yeah. of that's amazing. To, I was yeah. expecting I was expecting like double. Yeah. Well, because, what you or, see, you know. what you see with these um, <clears throat> it, these online services are they're upselling you to spend you know more to get the you know the crystal cut vase or sure. you know the the sure. box of chocolates with it or I mean, the long just, stem big box. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Another place I like to recommend, especially because in cold areas, of course, it is hard to get fresh flowers yeah. uh, that are locally grown. CaliforniaOrganicFlowers.com is a little farm in Chico, California. They have their certified organic three-acre farm, and they supply. They they're like, I call them the anti-FTD. So they're shipping. <laughs> if you can't find local flowers, they're shipping bouquets. And right now, they don't have roses, but they have twenty-four stems of organic mixed anemones. And those anemones are like fuchsia and purple and deep red, and those with those black centers, like yeah. luscious. And that those are this week forty-five ninety-five. Wow. And it's two dozen. So, you know. And I'd rather have anemones than red roses yeah, any day, yeah. you know. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's the other thing that's happening in, in the whole Valentine's world is people want an alternative to roses. Yeah. They're looking for that. So Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. and um, uh, David Austin Roses now is selling local bouquets, too. Well, you know what? Texas, they, just, right? they just suspended their cut flower business. Um, I don't know why. They still mm. have it in the U.K., but they dropped it in the U.S. last fall. Oh. There is a wholesale grower in California called Green Valley Floral, and they, they're growing the David Austins for the wholesale trade, but nobody's doing retail anymore, which is okay. really too bad. It's well, tragic. Yeah, they were really kind of um, trying to get on the wedding bandwagon, mm-hmm. too. Um, mm-hmm. And they were, like, you could just... 
kind of design your floral bouquets on your own and then they would send them off to you. And weddings is where people will pay a premium for cut flowers. Maybe the flowers that you're bringing to your home weekly or bi-weekly, you you may be a little more cautious about spending, you know, premium for. But if you're, when you're having your wedding or some other special occasion, that's when you're going to drop, you you know, big bucks. bucks. And that's where I think American growers can really make, can really, you know, do well. Mm -hmm. I think to are focusing on that on, on weddings and events and, you know, like our White House should be filled with American-grown flowers. You yeah. know, Dan. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't stop my call waiting before you guys called me. I'm sorry, but say that again. The oh, White House should what? I was saying the White House should be filled with American-grown flowers. You know, absolutely. Like, I am totally behind that idea. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, that's another conversation. <laughs> I was going to say, wow. Okay. Well, let's talk about Alaska <laughs> yes. as part of the United States. A little um, far removed, but still part of us. Yeah, I guess they're, right. they're big in the peony industry. Is that right? Yeah. Right, right. And I could tell you were a little skeptical about that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but here's my answer. Because when I went up to Alaska to report on the peony growers there last summer, my friends were like, okay, that's not the 50-mile bouquet. That's like the 1,500-mile bouquet. <laughs> right. And I, you know. And Russia's right next door. No, I'm just <laughs> <But> kidding. <laughs> I, I believe, hey, I believe in supporting American flower farmers no matter where they are. And actually, there are flower farms in all 50 states thanks to the fact that Alaska has just begun growing peonies. There's about 150 intrepid small family farms. It's literally the only agricultural export crop from that state. <laughs> wow. It's oil or fish, both of which do not smell as good as the peonies. Wow. Um, but the thing about Alaska peonies, that the real magic is that those flowers are harvested in July and August and even into early September, well after peonies have finish blooming in the lower 48. Right. Usually, when do you guys, I mean, June, maybe? June. Early June? May, late May, early yeah. June, yeah. Right. So they're not competing with anyone else on the planet. They are the only place on the planet in that July-August window, which of course is when most brides are demanding peonies in their bouquets. Right. And so I'm kind of, I'm behind this because, yes, there's a carbon footprint, but I interviewed Dr. Pat Holloway of University of Alaska at Fairbanks. She's the main primary researcher of the peony industry mm-hmm. and she points out those empty airplanes are leaving the state anyway so isn't it great that we can put some lightweight right. product on that helps stimulate economic development in rural alaska uh-huh. so it's pretty cool that's and I really think that cool those those fl- farmers are selling their stems for like 350 to four dollars per stem wow um, wholesale Wow. So it's helping. And they have plenty of sunshine there in summer. Yeah. <laughs> and the cool temperatures. Yeah. Yeah. It's just mind-blowing. But um, I'm encouraging it because I feel like um, they're not putting anybody else out of business. They're right. really They're filling a niche that is that, that's definitely a demand. So. It's, it's the old idea of the ballast, you know, mm-hmm. in the boat. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's great. So tell us about slowflowers.com and your campaign on Indiegogo. Well, thank you for asking. I mean, this what I'm really hoping to accomplish with the slowflowers.com website, which is sort of a play on the book name, is that every time someone wants to give or send or purchase flowers, they stop and say, can I buy American Grown? And the Slowflowers site will help them navigate that search. It's, it's really going to just identify who are the, the florists, the farmers, the designers, um, the retailers who are sourcing American grown, especially local in their own area, but say if it's out of season, maybe maybe they're going to be getting California grown. Right. 
so the site's about ready to launch. I, I ran out of money, and so I spent about $15,000 on my own money to launch the site. And, um, you know, it, we're right. not done yet. So right. some friends had been... And the cost is really building this database with all the wonderful features like video, photo galleries, links, Yelp-style reviews. I, I mean, anybody who's going to order through this site, I want them to have the ability to give a positive or a negative review of that experience. Oh, so you can order through the site then. It's not like it's, it's not just a directory. No, no, I'm, it's not an e- it, I'm not doing e-commerce. I, what I mean is, um, no, I don't want to take, I'm not taking a penny out of any of these transactions, but I'm just pointing you. So if you have, uh, your, mother-in-law, your mother-in-law lives in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, yeah, and you don't right. want to use a toll-free, you can go put in her zip code and find who the florists are in Milwaukee or the farmers, because a lot of farmers do farm direct. And then you'll, You'll contact them through the website or their phone number, make the trans, you know, have yeah. a transaction. Okay. But then if it's positive, you'll put a review on there. Okay. Hopefully. Good. Right. So Good. Yeah, and I like to do, I was doing something kind of like that. Whenever I send flowers, I always try to call the florist directly. That's you know? what I do. Yeah. Because I feel like. I just look it up online. Yeah, yeah. I look up the local florist that's nearby. I try to give the business, because I know having worked, my first job in horticulture was at a big New York florist. Oh, wow. And I know that they don't make much money on those FTD things, mm, on no, those deals. No. They, some of them are losing money, yeah. you know, in, yeah. Some, yeah. in some instances, but they have to be part of the network, you know, so it's really wonderful to, to be making a new network. You know, I an hope alternative so. I really, network. Yeah, yeah. I feel like it really is creating community because people. Are, there are there are florists on the site who say, "I'm so glad you're listing farmers because I need to find farmers to buy from." Right. And the farmers are thrilled that they might have you know an excess of you know particular crop and and wow, the next city over, there's someone who wants to buy it now at right. the flower shop. Right. So we're pretty close. The campaign on Indiegogo ends February 19th, and my original goal was 12000 I think we're going to be more like 16000 which awesome. is... Awesome. Yeah, pretty sweet. And um, <laughs> Well, I'm going to go on that tonight when I get home and <laughs> yeah. contribute to you, yes. because it's brilliant. Oh, thanks. Well, the cool thing is all that money is going to pay my developers and then to do a big... I'm probably going to do a big Mother's Day promotion, because... Right. Um, we'll be ready to launch then. And my goal, my ultimate goal is to have a thousand members listed on the site. We'll probably, in all 50 states, we'll probably launch with about 300 right. uh, resources. Right. And we so. need, you know, the thing about the cut flower business too, if it's local, is if a, a local farmer is growing organic already or, or growing various crops on his farm, it's such a natural addition to add flower, cut flowers to it. You mm-hmm. know, it's just another yeah. source of revenue. That, right. you know, or if, if one crop fails or if he doesn't do well with, with one thing, the flowers can offset that, you know? Yeah, you know, it's so interesting to say that I just, I have a podcast that I'm doing to interview flower farmers and florists, and I just interviewed a farmer yesterday for a show next month, and she started adding flowers to her farm to create a, play, a way to attract pollinators. It was nothing more than that. She wow. wanted she wanted biodiversity, right? And all of a sudden, she realized that it's a it's a value added crop. Yeah. We, I said to her, probably more than carrots. She goes, well, not my carrots because I have rainbow <laughs> carrots. <laughs> but but it's, it it's is exciting. You, you do you will pay more for something yeah. like that. You know. Well, um, Deborah, I've got a connection for you. My cousin in Tennessee is a zinnia grower. Oh, and right. He's um, and he's already in all the local Tennessee. 
um, markets. Um, Good. I want to talk to him. Yeah. So I will connect you too because I think this will be great. And you know, he he and and his wife are very connected with local Grow Tennessee products. That's their whole initiative. Um, well, that's the other thing about you know every state now has one of those you know yeah. um, commodity or you know ag, ag promotion campaigns. Yeah. Fl- flowers are starting to come into that world. Yeah. Um, which is exciting. And that's where the consumer already gets it. Yes, um, yes. So. Are there any government subsidies for flower growing? Uh, the only subsidies that I've been able to come across are through USDA specialty crop block grants. Mm-hmm. And um, those are administered, you know, state by state. Uh, at the state level, but it, the, the USDA gives like every state, you know, their own chunk, their own and, budget, you know, chunk right. of money. But for example, you said that I was on the board of the Seattle Wholesale Growers Market. This is a farmer to florist cooperative based in Seattle. It involves about 20 farmers in Oregon, Washington, and Alaska, and they got a, a two state block grant um, to promote a super bar- supermarket mixed bouquet program. Oh, awesome. Um, and so that was like $113,000 to develop packaging and messaging and to hire a floral merchandiser. And, you know, there's that kind of money. Right. But what there, what there isn't and what Congress has never done is mitigate the pain and suffering that the American flower farmers are feeling. Like the corn be- industry, right? Be- right, because of all the, the free tariffs that are, you know, the tariff-free flowers that are flowing in from South America. Right. So that's, that's kind of sucks. That's but, a sad, yeah. But the farmers are intrepid, like we said earlier, and they, um, they love their land. Yeah. And they love, they love living off the land, and they, they know flowers are you know, a possibility for um, making a decent living. When I got married, um, I got married at the Museum of Appalachia down in mm. Tennessee. Mm. And my friend who is was a landscape contractor, he did all my flowers for me. And we went to the local flower market, you know, the day before the wedding and pulled what we could. Um, and I said, it was, you know, it was this was a May wedding. So I said to the the rep at the mm. flower market, I said, do you guys have any lily of the valley? And he said, oh, no. Oh, that's too expensive. Nobody. And I was like, it is a weed, and you yeah. could be making so much money. It's a wedding flower. <laughs> it's so true. It's so funny. that in, in the, the, big, the big crop here on the, on like from San Francisco up to Seattle, everybody is wants Queen Anne's lace. And most people are like, I think that's roadsidea, but sure, we'll grow it, you know, and it's it's cherished because it's so fragile and ephemeral and old fashioned. Yeah. But now farmers are throwing it rows of it. Oh, I know. I just bought some, um, and I we gave some to some of our select clients, and then I planted some at my parents' house. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a great. It's a great flower. Yeah, it's interesting. It's kind of like the alternative to baby's breath, although that's hot again too, which is crazy. Is it really? Yeah, it came, yeah. and everything from the seventies is back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we have to. We're coming to the end, unfortunately. Yeah, sure. The forty-five minutes always. Passes so quickly. So I have to ask you, um, you know, Valentine's Day is only four days away. People always wait till the last possible <laughs> minute, especially men. And, and I experienced this firsthand working in the florist. No <laughs> blue dyed flowers. No blue dyed flowers, please. Oh, my um, goodness. So where can people, can people still mail order um, yes. if, you know, and choose ethically and choose slow flowers now, today? <laughs> I think they can. It may take a little more work. I mentioned those those sites. I'm going to um, put some links up on deborahprincing.com, and so I Good. actually have about a list of about 80 or 90 um, 
people who've already signed on to the Slow Flower site that I'm, I'll put up there for oh, you. Oh, good. But the other thing is, you know, there are other cool options. I've been encouraging people to find a far, flower farmer in their area and pre-order a seasonal bouquet for when the flowers are at their peak. So you're giving a gift certificate for a summer bouquet as a Valentine's That's ticket. a really good idea. Oh, that's a great idea. Yeah, and that. then... You know, you mentioned dahlias. I mean, a case of dahlia tubers. I, if my husband would figure it out, that's what I really want. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or seed packets of heirloom and edible flowers. I mean, that, you know, for a gardener, that's a great Valentine's Day gift. But uh-huh. it's not too late to get uh, flowers. Um, I think it's, it's kind of a, a artificial week to give flowers. Yes. So, you know, yeah. or ki- orchids, houseplants, um, flowering branches, uh, you know, those are also I love available. those. I yeah. love the cherry blossoms, yeah. the plum. Yeah, bring it in. Know. Bring it in. We all need it. You know, I just, <laughs> or, or be, befriend an arborist and get your own free branches. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I just bought um, for myself because like winter has been very long and snowy here um, mm. in the Northeast. I bought some hyacinths. I had to. Mm. Yeah. You know, I couldn't take it anymore. Yeah, just, we, we're know. on our fifth. <laughs> fifth yeah, installment of tulips <laughs> yeah oh you guys well yeah. i think you're both kind of d- dancing back into the flower production uh I, I, by the time I we're done it. now yeah. i convinced you to become flower farmers if we just had some land <laughs> <laughs> well we have rooftops we have rooftops yeah. so well we can we can encourage our clients to we always try to put some cuts um into people's gardens that, uh-huh. that we create in fact one of our one of our clients, who is very dear to us, has been a client for more than ten years. Um, she she wants her garden she is all about wants, picking, yeah. all about mm-hmm. picking, and that's mm-hmm. and every week. Yeah. That's what she you know. So we have to really pay attention to the arra- you know the bloom times. Yes, sure. So that she is has not disappointed. Yeah. yeah, and she's great. Oh, you know, it's, it's it's very fun to make sure that she has a weekly arrangement. Yeah. Oh, that's like a nostalgic practice that she's bringing into the modern lifestyle. Yes, I love that. Absolutely. And it's all in containers on a Manhattan rooftop. So yeah. it's pretty it's pretty fun. Wow. Well, I'm inspired. I'm, I'm going to come invite myself to see that garden when I'm in New York. Please next time. do. Please look we'd us lo- up next we'd love time to you're show here. You, We'd love to meet you. Thank you so much. I've just really enjoyed being on the show with you. I listen to you uh, on my, um, you know, download, so it's nice to be live. Oh, good. Good. Thanks. Well, thanks for being on the show. Happy Valentine's Day. Um, you've been listening to the Heritage Radio Network and We Dig Plants. Special thanks go out to our sponsor. Um, our show has been produced by Jack Inslee and engineered by Joe G. Remember <laughs> to join our Facebook fan page. Stay current on our, uh, on our projects, our upcoming shows, and you can also win free stuff. Thanks for listening. See you in the garden. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.